Church, it's great to see you guys again today. And if this is a first time or first time in a long time, uh, we started a new series back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past to eternity still future. And so we're continuing in that series this morning, taking a look at the teachings of Jesus Christ and specifically uh, the parables, some of the, the stories that he told, which is what parables actually are. They're the stories that he told. He's looking around at normal things taking place in the world around you, and he's communicating complex spiritual realities through these everyday kinds of stories. And so uh, the one that we're going to look at today, uh, this is kind of a funny one. It may actually not be a parable, right? So <laughs> just get a little throw that out there. Commentators are kind of divided on this when they're going, they're going, okay, well, it kind of starts off like a parable, but you're going to see that Jesus immediately, he, he takes it and he turns it and he just starts speaking directly to the people. And so it may, uh, it may not actually be a parable. Nevertheless, uh, we're going to be picking up where last week left off. And so uh, if you were here last week and you're kind of going, okay, well, uh, that was a little bit heavy. And you're going, okay, that was a little, a lot of conviction. There's a lot of poking and prodding kind of going on there. Then the good news is we got round two happening this week, so uh, that's kind of what we're jumping into today. And so it kind of reminds me, this past week I was out at the gym, and real quick, how many of you guys do like a, you do like a CrossFit or like a boot camp or some sort of a, some sort of a, a gym where you got coaches, trainers forcing you to do things you don't want to do? Right, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay, so I, I tried that back in January. I'm still doing it. I'm not, not just trying it anymore, but uh, that was kind of one of my new resolutions I jumped into. It's been about three or four years for me since I've done any physical activity, and so I was very out of shape. And so um, I decided to go all in and do CrossFit, right? And just, you know, go ahead, go hardcore right there. And so I'm back there. I, I'm Googling these workouts like every single morning trying to figure out, I, I don't know what this stuff is. What am I doing? Way out of my element and pregnant women are beating me on everything. And so uh, it's demoralized. It's, you know, it's a little humbling and stuff. And so anyway, we're back there doing this workout. I think it was uh, Tuesday this past week. And uh, it was a routine. It's like all these different, uh, you, you do a lot of different stations and stuff. And so um, anyway, we're doing a whole lot of things like walking lunges, tons of squats, and a lot of different things. One of the last things we're doing at this workout, and of course it's for time, you're competing with each other, and so you can't take it easy because otherwise you're going to be last and they put your time up there, which is terrible. Anyway, um, and so we're getting to the end of it. Like the legs are shot. The legs are completely gone. I can barely walk. And one of the last things you got to do, box jumps, uh, about 24, in, about two and a half feet off the ground, big giant box jump right there. And your legs are shaking. I'm like, I'm doing well just to be standing upright right now. And so you get to the end and, and like, I'm not kidding. I get to like rep 12 or 13 and finally I'm like crawling on top of this box. I'm like, come on, leg, get up there, you know, just trying to force yourself up there. And I finally, you know, crawl over and do like that rep 15 and I'm breathing hard. I'm like, yes, I'm finally done, right? And I'm like, uh, then I start looking around and I'm like, no one else has stopped. And I was like, I've never been first in anything here, right? This is not, like, this is, something's wrong. And of course, coach comes over to me. She's like, are you already done? And I was like, yeah. She's like, how many reps did you do? I was like, 15. And she goes, ah, 50. <laughs> you got to go to 50 reps there. I was like, you got to be kidding me right now, right? You ever had that time you thought you were pretty good and stuff? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not even halfway there. Right. And the reason I say that, like if you were here last week and you're kind of going, okay, bro, you're pushing and prodding and, and there's a lot of conviction happening right here. Good news is you're only on rep 15. Right? Like Jesus, like Jesus has taken us the rest of the way in this parable, and he's pushing us all the way to the end in rep 50 and stuff. And so uh, hang on. If you got your Bibles, Matthew 25, again, we're going to pick it up in 31 to 46, and we're going to kind of wrap up the end of the chapter right here. Uh, if you weren't here last week, no problem. I'm going to catch us up a little bit, and so you'll feel like you were, and you'll get two doses right in one workout. So um, all of that discourse is what's happening here in chapter 24 and 25. This is Jesus. 
Jesus preaching on the Mount of Olives right here. The subject matter is the end times. And so, like I said last week, this isn't a brand new question people are just asking today with Tim LaHaye and Kirk Cameron doing it, uh, you know, uh, left behind series and things like that. This is a question people wanted to know way back when, even when Jesus was around, they're sitting there kind of going, okay, Jesus, like, when is this whole thing going down? When is it all going to end? How are we going to know that the end times are being ushered in? And so um, essentially Jesus, he, he obliges them. And in chapter 24, he gives a lot of symptoms and signs of what's going to take place just before he returns and establishes his thousand year reign here on earth. And so there's a lot of different things there, but then he wraps it up in chapter 25, essentially with three consecutive parables that all build on each other to all make essentially the same point where he's simply saying, okay, don't be so concerned with when the whole thing's going to take place. Like don't rent the billboard on 75 that's saying, hey, next Thursday is when judgment day is happening. Don't do that. Stop writing those books and, and things of that nature and stop being so consumed with figuring out all the metaphors and all the symbolism taking place and stuff like that, that you forget about why you're here to begin with. Don't be so consumed with figuring out all those details that you forget about the fact that I am returning again. Uh, there will be an end, and there's a reason that you're here on this earth right now. And it's exactly what we talked about last week, the parable of the talents. Talents, uh, when Jesus told that story, he's not just talking about, hey, I can jump really high, I can sing really well, those kinds of talents, right? Talents are essentially everything that has been entrusted uh, to you by God for the mission of God. And of course, that's his whole point in the parable of the talents, like everything that you have, natural gifts, spiritual, uh, spiritual gifts, opportunities, talents, um, people that are in your life, everything that you actually have is not actually yours because it has been entrusted to you by God for the glory of God, for the mission of God. And so in the context of these end times, Jesus is kind of saying, hey, church, be ready. Be ready because I'm returning again. And as he's saying this message to say, hey, be ready, he just tells this story, uh, this tragic story of a guy who ends up wasting his life away uh, simply because he was too afraid to take a risk and invest his life in anything that his master had called him to do. And so if you were here last week, you're kind of looking at that story going, yeah, that was a heavy one. Like it was just this tragic story of a wasted life, this guy who was too afraid, and he took the things that were entrusted to him and he just buried them in the ground. And some of us were kind of left yesterday, last week, and we we're going, yeah, that hit a little too close to home. Because if you did the homework and you were, you, you know, you wrestled with that question, hey, have you ever done an inventory of everything that's actually been entrusted to you? My gifts, my talents, my spiritual gifts, my home, my family, the people that God's put in my life, my job, my income level, all these different things. If you've ever done an inventory of those things, then you probably left here kind of going, yeah, okay, like, there's a lot more that's been entrusted to me in my life than I've ever given a second thought to, ever. And I don't know if you guys felt that. Did anybody feel a little bit of heaviness last week? Maybe you wrestled with the question we kind of left with was, hey, um, are there any risks that you feel like God has been calling you to take that you may have been resistant to take for a really long time? You may have been taking that opportunity and burying it in the ground, kind of like one talent guy did. And some of us were kind of leaving there feeling like, yeah, uh, I, I can look back at the entirety of my life and recognize, hey, there's a million different places that I've missed. There's a lot of different opportunities that I've missed. And at the end of the day, I've been burying a lot of what God has entrusted to me for his glory and for his purposes. And so you left kind of feeling like, hey, I just realized that I'm only on rep 15 and Jesus has taken us to rep 50. 
And it's what he's going to be doing here in this passage today. And so, again, like I said, these three parables are going to be building on each other. The first one's simple. Be ready because Jesus is returning. The second one is here's how you can be ready. Take what's been entrusted to you. Invest it in the kingdom of God for his glory and for his purposes. Round three is very simply going to be saying, okay, here's what it looks like even more to invest and entrust to, to invest um, everything that you've been entrusted with into the kingdom of God, the specifics of that kind of a thing. And so let's pick it up here together in verse 31. Here's what he has to say. He says, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he's going to separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right. He'll put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to the sheep on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom that has been prepared for you since the creation of the world. And so real quick, again, church, what's he talking about at this scene right here? He's talking about the time of judgment. When Christ is going to return again, the nations will be gathered at his feet. And he says that there's going to be, it's going to be like a shepherd, and he's going to be separating the sheep from the goats, two very, very similar animals that look alike, maybe even think alike and talk alike. And what he's going to be saying is that that judgment day is not going to be as simple as separating sheep from the wolves. In other words, it's not going to be as obvious as saying, hey, um, I've done evil, I've done good. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of Satan, the actual, the actual enemy over here. It's not going to be that clear and that obvious. There's going to be a lot of similarity there, and there's going to be a separation of sheep from goats. And many of the goats are going to actually think that they're sheep, but there's still going to be a separation that takes place. Kind of like what we talked about last week, where one talent guy is condemned by the master, not because of something overtly evil that he did, but he's condemned by the master because of something that he simply chose not to do. Right, that's what we're seeing here. Like, like there's a condemnation, there's a judgment that takes place here simply because of something that they ignored and chose not to do. And so that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Is that it's not just the wolves that are going to be here at the judgment of God. Uh, there's there's going to be a whole lot of people that look a lot like sheep and may maybe think like sheep and may not actually be sheep. And so verse 46, he's going to wrap up this whole thing and he's going to say, okay, the sheep will go on to the, to the right into eternal life while the goats go to the left into eternal punishment. Church, we don't talk about this part much, do we? We don't like talking about this part much, do we? I mean, it, I don't know when you guys grew up or what, what tradition that you grow up in, but, I mean, it used to be that hell and eternal punishment and this kind of a thing was the thing that the church pretty much always talked about. In fact, some pastors and preachers, maybe where you came from, it seemed like it brought them great joy to talk about the judgment of God and how so many people there were going to be going to hell. I mean, we don't, we don't talk about this very much. This past week, and I was looking at this passage. Hello. All right. Can we hear me? Okay. <laughs> wow, this is weird. Yeah, okay. What else you got there, church? You want to start preaching to yourself? There we go. Um, <laughs> wow, that was weird. You think someone's like someone wants to shut down this part of the message or something? We don't like this part, do we? I felt a lot of conviction this past week as I'm looking at this part of the section kind of going, you know what? I've been guilty of not, maybe not being completely fair with the text of Scripture because it's not a popular subject to think about. Again, like I said, like it used to be the fact that this was a major part of evangelical preaching. You look back at the Great Awakening in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards got famous on a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
Probably couldn't get away with preaching a message like that today, right? Like people aren't coming back for a message like that anymore. Do you guys know who Jonathan Edwards is? Famous evangelist, famous preacher in the 1700s. God was doing an incredible work throughout the New England area. Revival was spreading everywhere. 1740s, like the gospel was spreading all over the place, except for this little place called Enfield, Connecticut. This is a town that was widely known as a hardened community to the things of God. Revival was all around them, but they were very proficient. They were very comfortable. They had everything that they need, so they had no need for God. Jonathan Edwards found himself there that morning. He was not scheduled to preach that morning. And last minute, they asked him to come to take the pulpit, and so he preached the message that he was familiar with, and he titled it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he stood there in the middle of that church that day, and he stood up and he began preaching upon the terrors of hell, the certainty of God's impending judgment, and how it is even more gruesome and terrifying than anything that we could ever possibly imagine. He started going into graphic detail on the terrors of what a fiery eternal hell would look like, feel like, and uh, what that experience would, would always be like. All the while, he is reminding his people that unless you repent and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, then they will still be lost and dead in their sins, and the wrath of God will not be appeased unless our sins have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. What happened there that day in the middle of that sermon is nothing short of miraculous. Because in the middle of his preaching and description of the fires of hell and the pit of hell and, and the eter eternality of what's ahead for people who never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, like the church just started weeping. And people began standing up and crying and repenting of their sins. And they started walking down to the front of that church that day. And it said that Edwards wasn't even allowed to finish that message that day because the lamenting inside the church was so strong and so powerful that the church just began to break and they began to come down and bow at the foot of the cross. And church, what I'm trying to say is that there is an urgency that takes place when you and I are keenly aware of what it is that Christ has saved us from. Church, there is an urgency that takes place when you and I know the, 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 the links that Christ has gone to in order to save us from the pits of hell. I'll never forget it. A little while ago, I was talking with a buddy of mine, and, and I was asking him this question. I was just saying, hey, do you feel like, I'm, do you feel like that I avoid the topic of hell? Do you feel like I, I avoid some of this harsh language and stuff here in favor of the grace of God, which I obviously I lift that up all the time. And we were talking about, we were kind of critiquing some of my ministry, honestly, and, and we were talking about that, and he goes, you know what, I'll tell you this. He goes, uh, let me tell you the story of how my daughter got saved, and he went on to tell the story about how uh, they were out at this small independent Baptist church, kind of out in the sticks. It was around Halloween time, and, and the church had done a hell house. Anybody heard of this before? Horrific idea. We're not bringing it to DBC. Don't worry about it, um, but it's one of those things around Halloween. You know, they don't do the Halloween deal, but they do hell house. That's fine, so... Um, and so it's kind of like a haunted house, but it's not haunted. It's just haunted with demons and the reality of hell. So um, people come in there, and they didn't really know what they were walking into, but they bring their kids through this entire deal. And essentially, it's kind of taking you through the storyline of, of, uh, of faith and the cross and Christ and what he's done and the reality of God's judgment and the fires of hell at the very end. And it's a very terrifying thing where it's all, the whole thing is designed essentially to scare the hell out of you, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point of it, to, to bring it out there. And so they get to the end of it, and um, they come back out, and his daughter's kind of very, very shaken, of course. And she looks at him, and she goes, Daddy, is, is this whole thing true? Daddy, is this whole thing true? And he goes, yeah, baby, it is. It, it, it is true. And she just looked at him and with just innocent, wide eyes. She just looked at him, and she said, why have you never told me about this? 
Like, I've, I've been in the church forever. Like, I've done the Sunday school thing. I, got, I grew up there. I know the stories. I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he came and he died upon the cross for my salvation. I had no idea what he was saving me from. Why have you never told me this? I need to give my life to the Lord right now. Church, like there's an urgency that comes when we understand what it is that Christ has actually saved us from. I mean, it's right here in this text. Jesus is going to say, uh, Jesus is going to say to the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed. Like this isn't seeker-sensitive language here. Jesus says, depart from me, you who are cursed. And he's going to describe hell as a place of eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, it's not annihilation. In other words, it's not this great party that everyone who's denied Christ is going to go to. They're all going to be together. These are the ones that know they love drugs, sex, and alcohol, and rock and roll, and all these things, and, and they get to go party for all of eternity apart from Jesus. Like, like there's nothing neutral about this kind of situation. It is eternal. It is fiery. And it is in a place of eternal torment for those who have never surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, you guys remember the Rob Bell controversy about eight years ago? Anybody catch up with this at all? Rob Bell um, wrote a book, Love Wins. This is why it was such a big deal about eight years ago. Rob Bell at that time was one of the most influential evangelical preachers in our, in our nation. Honestly, he was, he was brilliant. Easily one of the most effective communicators of our time. He may have done the small group studies. He, he was one of the first that really got into the storytelling and the video telling of ministry and stuff. Started shooting these videos. And uh, your small groups probably did them if you were doing church about eight years ago. Um, just a brilliant, uh, just unbelievably fruitful uh, evangelical pastor around that time. Until he wrote this book called Love Wins, where he essentially minimizes the reality of hell. And he basically makes the proposition that, you know what, in the end, um, we are all going to get into eternity. And you're going to have the opportunity to then repent of your sins and profess faith in Jesus Christ. So in the end, love will ultimately win. In other words, what happens in the here and now you may not profess faith in the here and now, but if you, you get into eternity, you're not going to be going to this eternal place of torment where there's fire, destruction, like it's a real place of punishment. There's going to be separation from Jesus in all of eternity, uh, but you're going to be holding there, and you're going to have an opportunity in the middle of eternity to look upon Christ, to recognize that he is who he said that he was, to give your life to him. At some point in eternity, you will have the opportunity to come to him, and you will ultimately be saved. So in the end, love wins. And what Jesus is saying here is all due respect, Rob, but you're wrong. All due respect, but you're wrong. Like This is what he's saying. It is a place of eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels right here. There's nothing neutral about it. There's no, there no place. There's no opportunity. Once you get into eternity to rectify all wrongs there, there is an eternality to what is taking place right here, which is exactly why evangelical leaders about eight years were very, very abrasive and very strong in their denouncement of this book that came out. I mean, they went out and they were ripping and ripping and ripping, creating the separation that was going on right there. But not, because, simply, not simply because what Rob said was wrong. They did that because when you minimize the reality of hell, there is no urgency for a goat to repent and there is no urgency for a sheep to go and to tell the goat. And that's what's at stake here in this passage. At the very, very beginning, church, Jesus is saying, like, don't forget what's at stake here. 
This day is coming. Be ready. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't fall asleep in your comforts. Don't be so consumed with entertainment and comfort and, 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 and building up your own platform and then here and now that you forget that this day is actually coming and there's going to be a judgment that takes place not just between sheep and wolves but between sheep and goats and many who are actually goats will believe that they're sheep and on that day they're going to be surprised and they're going to realize you know what in turn I was actually a goat and he's saying be ready church because this day is coming and we don't want to miss this in church there is an urgency that comes for the goats to repent and for the sheep to then go when you know exactly what it is that Christ came to come when that Christ came to save us from and that is first and foremost here in this parable church don't forget or take lightly what's at stake here he continues on in 34 and here's what he says i want you to know this is going to sound really weird the king will say to the sheep on his right, come you who are blessed by the father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now here's why he says it. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, like when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Church, I want you to notice how he speaks about people who are in need. How did he just describe them? Somebody say it to me. Brothers and sisters. That is how Jesus sees people who are in need. They're not strangers they're not people to be avoided. They're not nuisances. They're not annoyances. They are brothers and they are sisters. Church, he's speaking primarily probably about other believers here in this passage, although that would not, um, that would not minimize the application of what he's saying here. Hebrews is clear. Let love of the brethren continue. Don't neglect to show love and hospitality to strangers. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ and going and being the hands and feet of Jesus to the body of Christ. It's what he's saying in John 13. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples by the way that you're able to love one another. And not just the people that you're like, not just the people that think like you, act like you, and share the same experience as you, but the people that are on the streets the people that are in need, the people that are asking you for help over and over and over again. The way that people will know that you're following me is by your ability to love them. They are brothers and sisters. Then he's going to say to the goats on his left, he's going to say, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. Church, once again, they're being condemned, not because of something uh, overtly evil that they're doing, simply because of something they chose not to do. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't look after me. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and sick and in prison? It's like, like, I think I would have noticed this if we saw you in that state of being, right? Like if Jesus was there and you knew that it was Jesus, I think I would have been paying attention a little bit more closely if I would have thought about it like that. And Jesus is going to say in 45, he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Church, why does he talk like this about salvation? We keep coming back to this over and over again. You're seeing this theme all throughout Jesus' teaching, all throughout the different parables. It seems like Jesus is, is presenting this works-based message for salvation, right? If you're, if you're great to the poor and to the needy, you're in. 
you ignore them, then you're out, right? If you, if you, if you invest your talents in the previous parable, then you're in. If you're a five-talent person, you invest it well, hey, you're in. If you're a one-talent person that buried everything that you got, then you're out, right? Uh, that's what condemnation is based on. We know it's not what he's saying. Paul's very, very clear. It is by God's grace that you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a free gift of God so that none of us are able to boast. It is uh, John three sixteen. Jesus is going to even say the exact same thing, right? He's going to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. Through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Again, belief is the foundational thing right here. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Church, like, why does he keep doing this? Like, why does it, like, why, like, we, he says it differently here in John chapter 3. I want you to notice the end of this passage, which we, which is probably the most quoted verse in all of Scripture here. Here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of light, because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil, context of belief, God to love the world, belief, he who believes in him will be saved. Now he moves to actions in verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. In other words, church, like once again, all he's doing is saying that genuine saving faith, real faith, it works. It's what it does. It moves. It has legs. It carries you places, which does not mean that it's always going to be perfect. It does not mean that you're not going to have seasons of struggle. It does not mean that you're, going to spend, you're not going to spend the entirety of your life growing in the maturity, learning from past mistakes. It does not mean that there's not going to be seasons of maybe being backslidden or walking in ignorance for a little while or anything like that. It does not mean any of these things. Yet foundational of what Jesus is saying, church, is that faith has legs. Genuine saving faith has legs. It always moves. It does things. It's why Hebrews is going to define faith like this in chapter 11, verse 1. It's going to say, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, a conviction about things that are unseen. It is a certainty about the things that are hoped for and a conviction about things that are unseen. In other words, like church, faith lives now like the unseen is able to be seen. It's why we have the whole hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Abel offered a better sacrifice by faith. Enoch walked with God by faith. Noah built a boat when the world hadn't even seen a flood like that by faith. Abraham packed up his entire family and moved to a place God had not shown him by faith because church, like that's what faith does. It lives now like the unseen can actually be seen. That's why James is going to say very, very clearly here, he's going to say, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that faith save them? In other words, he's asking the question that literally all of us have asked and wrestled with and hated for a season of our life, right? And then you come back around and you start understanding it for a little while. Like he's asking the very question that is all on our mind. Is my faith real? Am I a sheep or am I a goat? Am I a goat who thinks that I'm a sheep and deceived? Where am I in this whole thing? James answers it and he says it right here. And he says this, he says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. In other words, remember when Jesus talked about that back in Matthew 25? And he produced this parable, this hypothetical here about, about people who are sick and needy. Go back to that time and he says, suppose that a brother or sister, brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? 
In the same way, faith by itself, is, if it's not accompanied by action, is actually dead. Verse 18, but someone's going to say, okay, well, you've got faith, I've got works. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'm going to show you my faith by the things that I do, which is exactly what Jesus is saying right here. Here are the deeds that accompany faith. You believe that there is one God. That's fantastic, church. Like even the demons believe that and they shudder. In other words, there's a difference here that some of us are holding on to a faith that even the demons would acknowledge and believe is true. Like even the demons believe that God is one. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the son of God. Even the demons know exactly why he came to earth, he suffered, bled, and he died. The demons know all the right things about theology. The only difference is that they have never surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have never repented and said, God, here I am, take it. Everything. This is all me. Give me forgiveness. Come into my life. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Church, that is the only difference between what is going on there and some of, and some of us. I'll never forget one of the most confusing conversations I had with someone um, about the gospel. It was a few years back. We were doing a fourth Sunday evangelism, and we were kind of we were out in this community. I think it was that community, um, the apartment complex, and we were walking around back there, and I was engaging with this guy is grilling steaks, which is my love language. And so um, we were talking and having a great conversation and prayed for his family. And we start going through some basics of the gospel and he's reading some passages in the scripture there. And, and what's interesting is he's not debating anything, all right? We're, we're talking through this. I'm like, you know, for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, do you believe that? Yes, I'm a sinner. Like he gets those basics. He understands that sin separates us from God and earns us death and eternal separation from God in hell. He understands that we're all going to pass away one day. He understands a lot of these basics. And we get to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And salvation is a gift of God's grace. Right? It is not a thing that you do. We talk through Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And he's in agreement about that. We get to Romans 10, 9, which says, You confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Do you agree with that? Yes, yes, I agree with that. And I asked him the question. I just simply said, I was like, what has kept you from giving your life to the Lord? What has kept you from, what's kept you from saying yes to him, essentially? And he just simply looked at me and he goes, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good. I like my life the way that it is. And I was so confused by the conversation. I was like, wait a second, but you believe everything that we just talked about? Yeah, I think it's probably true. I do. I think it's probably true. And I was like, so wait a second, you, you, you believe that Christ died for your sins. You believe that, like, you believe that there's going to be a time of judgment. You, you believe in an eternal life and, and a separation from God and hell. And uh, you believe in all these things. He's like, yeah, I'm just... I'm good with the way that things are. And I remember feeling like I'm so confused. Like, how do you get to that conclusion? At the exact same time, I remember thinking they're going like, you know what? I respect him because at least he's being honest about his situation. Like, how many of us have engaged in a church or responded to an altar call or engaged in a religious service or something like that? And we've kind of gone through the motions of different things. And deep down inside, what we really believe is, you know what? I'm content with the way that things are. I mean, we've talked about it a lot. I mean, it, it, it's where our nation is, right? Most of us profess faith. We, believe, we acknowledge that we're Christians. 65% of the country is there. I'm a Christian, yet less than 5% has actually shared their faith at any time in the past year. Only 20% of those who identify as Christian have ever shared their faith in the entirety of their life. Like millennials today are saying that the 50% of them are saying, like, that is morally wrong thing to do, to go in and share your faith with somebody who doesn't believe. Like, it's not just something I choose not to, but, hey, you're wrong if you choose to do that. Never mind the fact that Christ has told us to go and to do that exact same thing. 
right? Like, like 25% have, only 25% of professing believers have read their Bible outside of a Sunday morning worship service at any time in the past week. Only 29% have actually given to the mission of God, to the people that are, that are actually contributing to it and that kind of a thing. And church, here it is. Like none of those are the marks of faith that Jesus is talking about here in this passage. Like those are the easy things. Those are the, hey, talk to the people that are like you in your, in, your, in your workplace, the people that are around you in your neighborhood and stuff like that. None of those are the marks of faith that Jesus is talking about right here. What Jesus is saying right here is, like, I want you to go to the difficult places. I want you to go to the least of these, the people that everyone else in the, in the world is annoyed by and ignores. I want you to pay attention to those people, the people that are needy, the people that are beggars, the people that are always knocking on your door asking for help. I want you to go and see those people. I want you to care for those who are sick. I want you to visit those who are in prison. I want you to provide food for those who are hungry, water for those who are thirsty, and shelter for those who are a stranger. Church, like, like that's what he's calling us to do. Like church, did you know, uh, Dallas Morning News came out with an article a little while, little while ago. They found that over 4,200 homeless people were living on the streets in Dallas County alone outside of shelters on a regular basis. 4,200 people in this exact same predicament that Jesus is talking about right here every single night, nowhere to lay their head. I was talking with Wayne Walker. He's um, the founder, president of, um, of our homeless outreach here in Dallas that we partner with called Our Calling. If you guys are looking for places to plug in, my gosh, one of my favorite ministries in all of Dallas. But it's absolutely incredible. I was talking with Wayne a little while ago about it. And he just said, yeah, he goes, yeah, um, we go out and every single month we identify 206 new homeless people every single month, meaning they have not been counted in other months before. Brand new people, homeless and on the streets. You want to know how they do that? They do it through ser volunteer search and rescue teams. Men, women, and children who give up their time, have regular paying jobs, take off a day's work or whatever, and they go there on like a Wednesday morning. They gather at the art calling facilities. They gather up resources. And what they do is they have a tracking things on their phones and on their iPads and things like that. They go into woods. They go behind liquor stores. They go into, um, they go into all the places where homeless hang out and try to hide from the rest of the world. And they go and engage people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with water, with food, with blankets and coats, and with more resources to help bring them out of that place into the shelter and to help them start in a newness of life somehow. And some of you are kind of going, okay, well, that's not, physically, I'm not really there. That's not really my thing. I got to work during the day. That's okay, because the extent of their ministry isn't just uh, taking care of physical needs. They are doing eight, they did 884 classes this past year, where they're teaching things like life skills. They're teaching things like the gospel, how to keep and maintain a job, how to find a job, connecting with different employers, and things of that nature. And some of you are kind of going, okay, well, I can't do that, but I can actually teach. And some of us are sitting here going, okay, well, I can't do either of these two things, but I can come during the week because every single day at lunchtime, they're out there serving food to the homeless community inside this facility, preparing it inside of a kitchen. And you and your life group can go and you can serve there on a regular basis to go help and enter, enter, to get connected with the homeless community that's right there. I mean, I'll never forget about, about the beginning of December, our staff went out there to go hang out with our calling one morning. And it happened to be a morning where it was pouring down rain. It was probably in the high 20s that day. And so it was just miserable, miserable weather. And the homeless are standing around outside waiting for the thing to open up. And we get in there and um, we're doing our thing, preparing food and kind of getting situated with some of the classes that are about to take place and things like that. And uh, I'm hanging out at the table with, talking with a few of the guys there. And 
And all of a sudden, people start standing up, and they start running. And, and I was like, what's going on? And, and they're like, code red, code red. They start freaking out and stuff like that. Evidently, there was a man who everybody had thought had just passed away right outside of the, right outside of the building. And we run out there, and sure enough, this guy sprawled out in the rain. And come to find out, the man had been there since yesterday, sitting outside, pouring down rain, over 20 years old, and he nearly frozen to death that night or that morning. We're talking with some of the homeless, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's Bill. He's out there all the time. Yeah, we, we, we walked past him this morning and stuff like that. Church, like, that's just their life. That's their, that's their daily reality, living outside of their cold weather, raining down every single day. And church, what I'm saying is that these opportunities are around us every single day. And what Jesus is saying is this is what faith does. Like, you want to know, are you a sheep or you go away? Like, this is what faith does. Faith goes to the least of these, and it loves the least of these, because it doesn't think of them as least of these. It thinks of them as brothers and sisters, and every single one of us would do the exact same thing if a brother and sister were in the exact same predicament. But we don't think about them like that, do we? Church, like these opportunities around us every single day for the nations is our refugee partner. Cameron Mullins was here just a couple weeks ago telling us all about what's going on here in Dallas. Did you know we have over 200,000 international refugees that are living here in Dallas legally? This isn't a political matter or anything like that. 200,000 international refugees living here in Dallas. You know their story, church. Like, like we're not talking about people that come in and, and have it easy here in Dallas. These are men, women, and children who have lived the majority of their life in a refugee camp somewhere around the world where war has been so terrible that they have no more home. They've been forced to flee and run and to live on the dirt underneath a tent with millions of other people and a tiny enclosed structure. And they are praying every single day, God, by your grace, would you allow the United Nations to resettle me in a safe place so that I can rebuild my family once again. Nearly 10,000 of them live over there in Vickery Meadows, 200,000 here in the middle of Dallas. And, and, and For the Nations is there. One of our ministry partners came from our church body. Beautiful place where every single day about seven, 800 uh, people are being served through classes, ESL, job training. They're trying to figure out how to do life and help them get integrated. I'll never forget when I first moved to Dallas about uh, 14, 15 years ago, something like that. I had my first interaction with, um, with the refugees and figure out what was happening here in Dallas. His name was James. He was one of the lost boys from Sudan. He's about six foot eight, 100 pounds. And um, got to know him. We invited him into our home. And we're having dinner with him. And, and, uh, and I was asking him about his life. And he goes, you know, I, I, I lost my job. I'm trying to find a job. And we're like, James, what happened there? And he goes, well, I was working at the hospital, Parkland Hospital. And I was a little bit late to work one day. And I came in. And my boss got really, really angry. Started kind of yelling at me a little bit. And I just turned and ran. And I ran outside of the hospital, I grabbed my bike, and I went home, and I just never went back. I was like, James, why did you, why did you, why did you run? You can't do that. He's like, I thought he was going to kill me. He goes, I thought he was going to kill me. He got angry. And when, church, you, you know that that is like most refugee stories here. I, I, he's coming from a place where that's what you do. You get angry, you kill the person that's next to you. And we're coming back from that place, and you're stuck in the middle of Dallas. You don't know the language. You don't know how to, keep in, how to keep a job. You don't even know how to tell time because you didn't tell time where you came from. Right, they don't know how to use a microwave. I showed that man how to do He's like, what do, what do people, what's that box for? People put them in there. They hit a button, and all of a sudden, food's ready. And I was like, it's a microwave, right? Like, we sat there and told him about a microwave. He'd been keeping his milk on his countertop. And he, meanwhile, there's a refrigerator in his apartment that gave him. He had no idea what that was about. 
Church, and what I'm saying is we got 200,000 of them there that are being described by Jesus as brothers and sisters, infinitely loved by God. God has brought the nations to our foot, and, feet, and literally we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that that's just what faith does. It's, it's what faith does. We, 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 we adopt the heart of the Father. We see people differently than the rest of the world. We look at them as brothers and sisters, not nuisances or, or, not, or, or, or problems or, or anything like that, and we love them as Christ would love them. And church, like some of you are already on board. You're doing it day in and day out. It's why you're jumping on board. You're going with us to Guatemala. It's why we do these trips. We're going to places where there's an incredible amount of need. We are going to Guatemala, and we're reaching a people group that has not been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity, and they've asked for help. Like, we're not coming and imposing American imperialism on them or anything like that. They've asked for help. We're partnering with local people that are bringing a gospel influence there, and some of you are going to have that opportunity to go on that trip and to do exactly what Jesus is describing right here. It's the food pantry on Wednesdays once a month, just behind our building at our youth building. We get 45 families from the apartment complexes right there and right there who are living in poverty that need our help. And they're doing it every single time. It's circle one. And you're doing it through foster care and adoption. You don't even need a program. But you're simply responding because you may not have even known that that's what you're doing. But you're saying, you know what, this is what faith does. And you've already reached out and you're engaging in foster care and adoption and you're loving the least of these. And church, what I'm saying is that Jesus is saying, like, this is what sheep do. This is what sheep do. They adopt the heart of the Father and they go after the least of them and they see them differently than the rest of the world. They're not an annoying person. They are a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice verse 37. It says this, it says, the righteous will answer him, Lord, like, when did we see you hungry? And feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in naked and clothe you? In other words, like, they're not even intentionally thinking about these things. They're going, Jesus, we didn't, when did we do this? And they're like, oh, that's what you're talking about? That's just what we do. I mean, they're not sitting there kind of checking off a box here and kind of going, hey, this is, this is what I've got to do in order to be approved. Like, it's just what they do. And it's exactly what Jesus is saying here, church. Like, the bottom line of what he's saying is that who you really are, will eventually begin to shape the things that you do. Shape go when they love as their shepherd loves. I mean, just think about the church. Like when you know who you really are, it'll change everything about the way that you love, who you love, and the amount that you're able to love. I mean, Genesis 1.27 is going to say things like, I'm an image bearer of God, that in the beginning God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. In other words, like, it's not just me that's bearing the image of God. It's every single man, woman, and child, believer or not a believer, rich or poor, white, black, brown, yellow, red, everything in between, male or female. All of them have inherent dignity, value, and purpose as an image bearer of God, which, by the way, is not how it's always been played out inside the church. But here it is, church, like if you know who you are, and it's true that you and I bear the image of God, and so does the rest of humanity, then who in the world am I to discriminate against another? Like how in the world can I sit there and not have compassion simply because they're poor or needy or live in a part of town that I simply don't want to go over to? Church, I'm telling you, like, when you come to understand who you really are, everything that Christ has saved us from, everything that he's done for us, it will shape the way that you love. It will shape the way that you love, the people that you love, the amount that you're able to love. I mean, you just think about it, like, the gospel began in recognition that it's not just them, that I too came from spiritual poverty. 
In other words, like you and I had this experience where we sat there, we kneeled before the throne of God, we sat before the cross of Jesus Christ, and we recognized with po- we, we identified with poverty and said, I too come from spiritual poverty, that there's none who are righteous, not even one, that we are all lost and dead in our sins, we are hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, but here it is, church, in the middle of that spiritual poverty, God still loved me. In the middle of my spiritual poverty, God who is infinitely rich, Paul's gonna say in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, God who is infinitely rich loved me in my poverty so much so that he took on flesh and he willingly became poor so that you and I may receive his grace and then become spiritually rich. Church, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then how can we not identify with poverty? It's where we all began. Romans 8 is gonna say I'm forgiven and set free, which means that that is the potential for everybody who's out there on the streets and everybody who is in need. Paul's going to say that each of us are essential members of the body of Christ, which is a beautiful image to think about because they're not only brothers and sisters, but we are all essential members of the exact same body. Meaning if my, if my foot is on fire, my brain isn't going to be disconnected from that, going, man, that really stings for my foot. That probably stings. We're going to be sitting there kind of going like, like the foot, like I am on fire. We are on fire. The entirety of who I am, my whole body is on fire. My foot hurts. It makes me hurt. My toe burns. It makes my whole body burn. John's going to say, I've been given the right to be called a child of God, which is exactly why Jesus is able to call these people brothers and sisters. In other words, what he's saying here, church, is that they're not just strangers that are out there on the street, like they're family. And we've got to start changing the way that we look and think about family. Church, you want to know the fastest way to become my friend? Be good to my family. You love my wife? It's a great start. You love my kid? Man, we're good. You grill me a steak on top of all that? We're besties forever. That's why it's so personal for Jesus. I mean, it's like Saul on, in Acts chapter 9 on the way to Damascus. He's out there. He's persecuting Christians and he's blowing up the church. He wants them all dead. And on the way to Damascus, he's just, Jesus comes and he appears and he looks at Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's got to be looking at him, kind of going, like, okay, wait, wait, I'm not persecuting you. I'm killing those Christians over there. I'm, I'm blowing up the church. I don't want that thing to start. Like, it's not about you. And, and, and Jesus is kind of going, yeah, that's what you don't understand, Saul. You do it to one of them, you're doing it to me. Like, I knew them in their mother's womb. I numbered the hairs upon their head. Like, I knew them. They're infinitely valuable. They're created in my image, given inherent dignity and value and purpose as an image bearer of God. Church, that's how he feels about people who are in need. And some of us need to hear that today because uh, that's, maybe you've been there before. You've been on the streets. You've been in that physical, tangible time of need. You know what it's like to be sick and to get, be getting to a place where you are in need of people who are around you every single day. You know what it's like, and you need to know that that is how Jesus looks at you as a brother or a sister with an incredible amount of love and compassion And he looks at the body of Jesus Christ and he says, you're my body. You are my hands and you are my feet. And some of us need to hear this story a little bit because we've forgotten just how much he really loves the people that we like to avoid. Church, the first century church, they got it. The beauty of the first century church was just, we read about it again in Acts. They're they're, they're gripped by the reality of the gospel. The resurrection is taking place and they're selling all that they have for people that are in need. They go, oh, you don't have shelter here, come take this. You need clothes here, take some of my clothes. 
I mean, they're doing it. And the beauty of it is it continued through the second century. The Roman emperor Julian, who was not a friend to Christian by any stretch of the imagination, he wrote a letter to this guy named Marsatius, and he's complaining about the growth of the, of the second century church in this letter. And check out what he has to say. He says this. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. These godless Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but ours as well. They keep free from all impurity, for they live in the expectation of the recompense to come in the other world. In other words, they live like Christ is returning tomorrow, which is the exact same context Jesus is talking about here. They love one another. They don't neglect widows, orphans they rescue from those who are cruel to them. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring them underneath the roof. If they hear that one of them's in prison, oppressed by their opponents for the sake of Christ's name, all of them take care of all of their needs, and if possible, they even set them free. And what Jesus is saying is just, that's what sheep do, church. That's what sheep do. They know the urgency of what's at stake. They know what faith does, and they know who they really are. And so it changes everything about the way they look at people who are in need, their brothers, their sisters. And it changes everything about the way that they're able to love. Church, may that also be said of us. I want to invite you to pray with me.